starting in verse 5. The writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You can be seated. So as you see from this morning's text, we have a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, peer into God's Word and have the opportunity to talk about money. So um, whether you're in a good season with it or you're in a hard season with it, we all know something, a little something about it, right? So if you're a fourth grader in the room with $80 in a jar somewhere, or you're someone in the room with $80,000 in a jar somewhere, hopefully you, you don't have it in a jar somewhere. If you do, I would recommend grabbing someone, maybe Fran, talk to him after, he can help you with that. Um, so some are in the room and they're saving and they're planning for a future. Some are in the room and they're just struggling to make ends meet. So money is this monster of applicability for all of us. And in thinking through how I wanted to start this morning, I figured we'd start light. And I'll give you some lyrics here. And the first person to say out loud who sang this gets public praise. <laughs> the best things in life are free but you can keep them for the birds and bees. Now give me money. The Beatles. Actually, it was a guy named Barrett Strong who first sang it, but the Beatles made it popular. That's how I know it. Your loving gives me a thrill, but your loving don't pay my bills. Now give me money. That's what I want. That's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. (laughs) Not really easy to say that without singing it. Here's a quote. I love money. I love everything about it. I bought some pretty good stuff, too. Got me a $300 pair of socks, a fur sink, an electric dog polisher, a gasoline-powered turtleneck sweater, and, of course, I bought some dumb stuff, too. (laughs) That was Steve Martin telling us, really, that the more money you have, the more likely you are to end up with some stupid stuff. Benjamin Franklin said, Money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. He stole that from the writer of Ecclesiastes. Dogs have no money. Isn't that amazing? They're broke their entire lives. But they get through. You know why dogs have no money? No pockets. <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld. All right, here's the last one. This is, these are some lyrics. I don't expect anyone in the room to know these. Um, it's just so applicable, so I put it down. But this is, what, this is the kind of stuff I used to fill my head with in high school, and the theme is still prevalent on the radio today. It's the key to life. Money, power, and respect is what you need in life. Money, power, and respect when you're eating right. Money, power, respect helps you sleep at night. You'll see the light. It's the key to life. That's some worship song right there. 
So we see that a lot has been said about money and possessions. And a lot of us deal with it in some form of fashion every day. All of us deal with it in some form of fashion every day. So in very real ways, your life, my life, is going to be shaped and will take directions based on what we think about money, what we do with our money, and what our heart's disposition is towards it. So knowing that, it's no wonder that the Bible is full of teaching on money. So it's a major theme in our culture. It's a major theme in the Bible. In getting ready for this morning, one commentator said that 2,000 verses on money and possessions are in the Bible. I didn't know this either, that Jesus spoke about money and stuff, possessions, more than heaven, hell, and sex. It was the thing that Jesus talked most about. So Jesus thought that our relationship to money was of critical importance. And this is because our affiliation with Jesus is identity forming. And our affiliation with money is identity forming. They both can shape our identities. So Jesus said that God and money are two different competing masters. Both determine how you think of yourself. God and money determine who you think you are who you think you should be, what you think you deserve. So Jesus is saying that you're either being, he's either sanctifying you with your money or your money is distancing you from God. So we know that our identities are at stake when it comes to money because you can't serve both God and money. Now that's biblical money 101, and we're going to do a lot of that today. And what happens in the text that we read this morning that, that you heard is we're getting near the end of Hebrews and the, the writer comes to the end, and he's starting to lay out a series of moral commands. And so, in the beginning of chapter 13, he says, um, he starts with the positive. Let brotherly love continue. So, do love the brothers. Do love the sisters. Do love those in the church. Love strangers. Love prisoners. Love your spouse. Do love these things. Then in our verse, it goes to negative And he says, keep your life free of the love of money. So the command is, do not love money. Now, life in this verse, what he's talking about here is your manner of life. It's the way you do life. It encompasses your behavior. It's the stuff that's going on on the inside. It's the stuff that's going on on the outside. It's your person. The you of you is what he means by life. And love of money here is two words in in Greek, and it's love and it's silver. Right? So money's no longer silver to us. Silver makes me think of pirates. Maybe you too. But it's easy to interpret that and get the meaning of the text. Don't, um, it's used to describe a love of wealth. Okay? So we're going to start with what he's not saying. And he's not saying, notice, keep your life free of money. Now that's important to, to get a hold of here. So it's not as if money itself is condemned as evil. Because money's not evil. In fact, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about money. Proverbs 10, 15, I I like this one. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is his ruin. So, strong city sounds good. Poverty does not. Paul said in 1 Timothy, As for the rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to sell their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, to do good, be rich in good works, and to be generous, ready to share. So the basic takeaways of that text are, one, there were rich believers in the church. God said, um, God is said to richly provide us with all things, and that extends to money. He supplies us with these things for our enjoyment, and that the aim of the rich believer should be generosity, a readiness to share. So it is that money can be a great blessing. God uses it to bless believers. God uses your money to bless others. Now, this is obvious, right? It's, there's no secret that we're in a building in Melrose with a roof overhead that we paid for, right? If it was cold in here, we could turn on the heat. That costs money. There's lights on in places in the building. That stuff ain't free. My voice is coming out of speakers that probably cost a gilder or two. The bread and the cup that we take this morning was purchased somewhere, right? Money given by God is a massive blessing. And all of these things that make our life here together possible are given by God through your purse strings, through your wallet, through your accounts, right? We say that our life here today is made possible because of your generous giving, and that's true. Another way that we understand it is that our giving is a part of gospel advance in the world. So money given by God is a blessing. Now we want to turn to what the text is actually saying. The, the issue at hand that our text describes is a love of money, a desire for money, a greedy, covetousness, love, desire for getting money and having money. So that's the focus of our text, when your life is marked by a strong desire for money. So most people in here probably know that I'm a big fan of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, and there's no real holy reason why you're not a fan of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, it's a discipleship issue if you don't love Lord of the Rings. But as far as I can remember, I've never once used the Lord of the Rings illustration, so I'm going to do it now. The story revolves around a very powerful ring, right, given in the name of the film, the Lord of the Rings. It's the ring of power. It's the one ring to rule them all. And then for those of you who know the story, you know that the problem isn't the ring itself, right? It is creaturely interaction with the ring and its uses, That's the problem. It's the creature's love for the ring. Desire for its many many uses is the issue. The ring has no power, but if it's used by a person. So a major theme in Lord of the Rings is some choose to do, some choose to use power for good, and some choose to use power for evil. Now the ring does have this proclivity towards corrupting because it was forged with, in the story, the will of evil. And it's nearly impossible for anyone to be exposed to this ring without being corrupted by it. So it is with money, right? It's not that money in itself is powerful and evil. It's that when we have it, we, we become powerful in worldly standards, right? We can use it as a pathway to distancing ourselves from God. 
So money is a huge discipleship issue, and it's why Christ spent so much time teaching about it. And because it is such a big discipleship issue in the life of a Christian, when a pastor truly loves his people, there's going to be times where his job is to press into, peer into, and have a discussion about your life as it involves money. So I was thinking through this, and I was thinking through some of the reactions that can come out when a pastor, in love, genuinely taking Bible truth, approaches us uh, to talk about our money. And I'm going to give two negative uh, reactions first. The first one is skepticism, right? This is the reaction when there's unbelief sitting in our hearts. So if God isn't real, or if God doesn't care so much about our money, or probably more important for us, if the pastor isn't trustworthy, then any conversation about generous giving or the dangers of money is a con or a power-hungry grab of the church and its, its leaders to get a hold of money. So aiding that reaction is the ability to point to areas in church history where that's been true of the church, or you can now turn on the TV and you can point to some TV evangelist showmen who are doing the same. But that would be throwing the baby with the bathwater out, right? So when the pastor is loving and biblical, the skeptic response is simply justificational paranoia. It's a mental condition I just made up. This response to the genuine pressing of God's word by the pastor, another way to put it is the beautiful mind reaction, right? I don't know if you remember this movie. It was a a good movie. I tend to use older movies. I don't know if that's okay. I'm, I'm trying to pick popular ones that people have seen, but I like the older ones usually. In the movie, Russell Crowe is this paranoid schizophrenic. Basically, he sees people who aren't there. They give him missions that aren't real, right? He lives inside of a delusion. And whenever people who love him approach him and try to help him by giving him reality, he doubles down on the delusion and his life just spins completely out of control. This is what it can be like with our money, right? It's ours. We love it. We need it. Getting it is our mission. And any attempt by anybody to approach us and help us to see how we're hanging on to it or how our heart's grasping onto it in ways that it shouldn't is viewed as um, an attack or a conspiracy to get us. Right? So skepticism is one reaction. Another reaction that comes out of a discipleship or an approach of someone who loves you to talk about your money, is fear. And this is probably one that is most common in our own context. This would be where I land. So fear, too, is a reaction of unbelief in our heart. And although it's usually, this is usually where uh, a believer does battle, it's true that we as believers have vestiges of unbelievism, right, still in our hearts. So this can be true when you have little money, when you feel like you've got just the right amount of money, or when you have crazy rock star money, right? This can be true. Think through the connection that money has to a person's sense of security, sense of peace, and sense of satisfaction, okay? So think through those things with me. In a sense of security, when there's a lot of money in the bank or a lot of money's coming in, we tend to feel secure, When there's not a lot of money coming in or there's not a lot of money in the bank, we tend to feel unsecure and we focus on how to get more. 
So if there's enough money to pay for the house that houses me and my children, or there's enough clothes to keep us covered, or there's enough food to keep us nourished that we need, the medical bills and procedures that we need, if we have enough money for those things, we tend to feel secure. And if we don't, we feel insecure. Think about the ways that money is connected to a person, our sense of peace. So now we know that when money becomes the answer to how we stay protected through life, we tend to think that money will bring us peace, right? Because if I have enough, then I can handle whatever life's going to throw at me. I can't be moved. My body's not working. I got money for that. My car's not working. I'll buy a new one. My roof is leaking. I'll hire the roofers. They'll put a patch on it, right? Whatever we need, our problems can be answered, so we think, with money, and that gives us peace. And what tends to happen when you do have these problems coming up, but you don't feel like you've got the money to handle them? Distress, a lack of peace, right? How about how the connection of money, how is money connected to our satisfaction? Money tends to become our satisfaction when there's not enough to pay for the desires that come flying out of our hearts, right? You know what sounds really good right now? A big bowl of ice cream. I got money for that. You know what I want after church? A big chicken parm sub. I got money for that. I want leather seats. There's money for that too. I want a new grill at home. There's money for that too. My body's out of shape. Money for that. Money for the trainer. So money can be the answer or the key to distracting ourselves and satisfying our desires. And if there isn't money when we have those desires, then we become dissatisfied. So if the desires of our heart are worldly-focused security and worldly-focused peace and worldly-focused satisfaction, then the answer to those desires is money. So the Christian and the non-Christian alike Money is a mega problem because God did not invent money, did not think up economic systems to answer our heart's desire for security, peace, and satisfaction. When the Bible tells us to be free from the love of money, this fear can set in, right? Because if I have to part with my money, that means I'm exposing myself to some form of risk. There's a fear of lost security there. If I have to part with my money, that means I'm, uh, I might not have enough to cover my needs. A lost sense of peace. If I have to part with my money and change my lifestyle in any way, then I might not have the things I want. And there's a fear of lost satisfaction. So what skepticism and fear reactions expose in our hearts as you're thinking through this is a love for money. It exposes um, our heart as greedy. And once we get exposed, what do we typically do? We tend to justify it, right? Tell me if any of this runs through your head in these conversations. We think things like, they just want my money. Or, I know better uses for it, even better causes. They don't need it as much as I do. Or, who knows? what they would even do with it. My family comes first. Real concern. God wants me to be economically sufficient, pay off all my debt first. If I made more, I could give more. 
right? We justify our love of money because we're skeptical of God's goodness and we're fearful of God's ability to be our security, our peace, and our satisfaction. So what is a godly response to the Bible's pleading with us to be free of the love of money? What's, a, what's an alternative response? And the one I'm going to focus on now is generosity. Right? So generosity demonstrates that we do love the brothers and sisters, which in this text is the overarching um, theme of what the writer is getting at. Let brotherly love continue. So a lack of generosity shows that we actually lack love for the fellowship. When we're generous, we show that brotherly love is deeply rooted in our hearts. Generosity becomes a weapon against greed. It becomes a weapon against covenants. So if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I want to be generous. I don't want to be skeptical. I don't want to be fearful. Help me to know if I'm loving money. So as I'm thinking through this this week, here's some things that helped expose my heart to a love of money. Some are difficult, okay? Is it easier for you to buy something for yourself or someone else? Right. Have you ever asked at the counter for a cup of water and then gone to the fountain and got a soda? <laughs> You're laughing because you have. You ever left off some earnings on your taxes? Talk about fear. You ever taken a couple pieces of paper from work home because you didn't want to go to the store and spend two bucks? (laughs) I have. I won't send this to anybody I work with. Have you ever withheld forgiveness for someone who you borrowed money to that never paid it back? Do you tense up when a pastor starts talking about money? Are you tense now? Depending on how you answer those questions, they could be ex- it could be exposing a love for money in your own heart. And the truth, is that, the truth is that most of us do love money, myself included. And the point of today, the point of the text, is to walk that out into the light and expose it. Because what money ultimately, what love of money ultimately displays is self-love. If you love yourself more than your neighbor, you'll love money every time. Everyone who loves money loves himself more than the believers. That's what this is saying. And thus, ultimately, more than Christ. And that's a very, very sharp edge. This is a difficult thing to say and talk about. If you love yourself, you will love your money, and you'll not be generous with what God has given you. So if I was to say, hey, stop being greedy, be generous. Most everybody would agree that, yeah, greed's a bad thing. I've seen the terrible things that it does, and yes, we should be generous. Now, if I stopped there, that would just be moralistic teaching, right? Don't be greedy, be generous. Moralism. And that doesn't have any place in God's church. So we're not going to stop there. And if we have momentum and we're behind what the writer of Hebrews is saying and we want to flee a love of money, and we want to run towards generosity and love for the church of God, then how do we do so? I mean, that's the question. How do you do this? And the answer in the text is 
contentment, right? Contentment ultimately rooted in the riches of Christ. So the text says, be content with what you have. For God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can men do to me? This is the key to being free from love of money. It's rooted in the promises of God. Contentment is real, lasting knowledge of security. Real, lasting sense of peace. Real, actual satisfaction in God. And God is basically saying, don't love money, love me, I'm better. So knowing that, as we're going to start bringing this to a close, what are some of the keys of Christian contentment? What are some of the things that help make the believer content, at peace, restful, satisfied? What are some of these things? So three things. The first I want to go over is knowing God as good and loving Father. Knowing God as good and loving Father. Notice in the text it says that God will never leave. He'll never forsake. He'll be our helper. Don't be afraid. Men can do nothing to you. So if God is good and he is our loving Father and he made the world and he owns everything and he made you and he made me, then it doesn't make any sense to be infatuated with money, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't make sense to be afraid that we won't have enough to meet our needs. Scripture tells us that God is always working things for our good, for those who love him. This means that whether you have large amounts of money or you have small amounts of money, God is behind you, has your back, and he's working for your good. So if you believe that God is good and he loves you, you will have rest and you will have peace and money will become a much smaller thing in our lives. The second thing, the second key to contentment, the second thing that helps a Christian be restful and content in life is knowing what we deserve, right? Knowing what we actually deserve. It's nearly impossible to be dissatisfied or discontent when you know that at the moment, what we deserve is hell. So I'm going to tell you a story, and it's not about hell, but I'm going to tell you a story. When I was 13 years old, I went to an abandoned school, 13 or 14, no license. Went to an abandoned school up the street with a friend named Tom, and me and Tom are what my wife would call hooligans, right? We were, we were taking rocks. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. We were taking rocks and we were throwing them into the street lamps at the school. So I'm not kidding. Mid-chuck like this, a cop pulls around the corner of the building and my friend just 95-mile-an-hour fastball into the street light right in front of him. Cop jumps out, comes over, shows his badge, has a pad, has a pen. What's your name? What's your name? We're, you know, ready to go to the bathroom in our pants. This is my name. Where do you live? We live here. Okay. 
Tomorrow, what you two are going to do is come down to the station with your parents. We're going to have a talk about this vandalism. And I know where you live. If you don't come, I'm coming to your house. That was like, we left there terrified. We went back to my friend's house like, oh man, our parents are going to kill us. So the worst thing, as you can imagine, in our small world at the time was having to tell our parents that they had to take us to the police station on a work day, mind you. Now, somehow, and I don't even remember thinking back now, we knew that this cop lived next door to the school. So we were like, we got to go do something. We're praying to God that if we go there, the guy's going to let us walk away, right? So we're like tucking our stuff in, combing our hair. We go and we knock on the door, and the guy comes, and we said, we are so sorry. We will never, ever do this again, which was a lie, but (laughs) we'll never do anything like this again. And he goes, okay, I think you learned your lesson. You don't have to come in to the station tomorrow with your parents. The, the clouds parted. We were holding hands, skipping, singing songs back to his house. The rest of the summer, thinking about that moment, as happy as could be. So hopefully you haven't lost my point in that, right? If we're going to be content in Christ, we need to know what we've been released from. We need to know that once we were dead apart from him. And because God so loved us, he sent Christ in the world to forgive us our sins, to rescue us from the hell we deserve so that we could have this bright, amazing, eternal future. Because of Christ, God is like, okay, you're not in trouble anymore. If you find yourself thinking about what you don't have, instead think about that you don't have hell because of Christ. So let that go down deep. And the last one, the last thing I'll say on the Christian's key to contentment is knowing what true riches actually are. Knowing what true riches really are. So scripture tells us to set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are of earth, because there is no lasting treasure here. We aren't made to feel secure because we have good investments and little debt. We're not made to be at peace because our money is strong and our income is consistent and we have safe and we have plenty. We're not made for that. We aren't made to be satisfied by the things that money can buy us. To be truly rich is to have your life hid inside Christ and to be with him forever. To have money and not have Christ is to be dead broke. So now as we, as we bring this to clo- a close, I'd like us to turn our hearts um, to Christ and seeing how rich he is in his mercy and his grace And would you pray with me that our hearts would be so quick to choose God over our money? Would you do that with me? Father, you told us to keep our life free 
of love of money and be content. Father, we will never be content with our sinful hearts if your spirit doesn't point us to the majesty and the beauty and the magnificence of Christ. I pray that where we've not seen him as beautiful and glorious, where we've not seen him as our Lord and Savior, where we've tended to turn towards our money and latch onto that as our answer, would you bring repentance? Would you bring forgiveness? Would you help us to be free of money? Would you make us a really generous people to advance your mission here so that many more might come to know you? Father, we give you all the glory. Amen.